life isn't really about that momentary success. It really is about the internal process of becoming a person that you can respect, that you can look in the mirror and go, I'm proud of the person I'm becoming. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks, cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 293 of the Decoding Success Podcast with your host, Matt Labrie. I am excited that you've chose to join us for this episode, whether you're a returning member of this ever-growing community, or hey, maybe this is the first time you've ever even heard of this podcast. Regardless of where you stand, we are welcoming you into a conversation that has the power to move mountains, a conversation that depicts the power we all inherently have to live the life we desire and how to achieve that. Walking us through this conversation step by step, we are joined by my friend Erwin McManus, a gentleman that doesn't need an introduction because his body of work, his impact, his legacy that he's creating daily speaks for itself. But let me introduce you to him anyway. Erwin is a mind, life, and cultural architect, as well as an award-winning author and artist. His books have surpassed over 1 million sales, translated into over a dozen languages. Erwin has spoke all across the globe in stadiums of up to 100,000 people at a time. Just think of that. He's consulted with organizations such as the NFL and even the Pentagon. He's worked with celebrities, athletes, the list goes on. And today, he brings his genius here, his experiences, his life's work to you right here, right now on Decoding Success. There's a reason you chose this podcast at this time on this day. Or how about this? Maybe it chose you. However you want to look at it is totally up to you. But I'm going to call you to act on that belief. Breathe into it. Trust in the choice that you made or was made for you. And don't be shy to help the people in your life make a similar choice by sharing this episode with them. Help us expand our impact simply by screenshotting this and sharing it on social or texting it to a friend, the link, or even speaking about it out loud. And in advance, we thank you for always sharing our episodes and expanding our impact as a team. Now, from this episode, I want you to know what you are going to walk away with. Number one, the importance and benefits of challenging yourself in situations that might be defeating. Erwin shares a story of how he had surgery, asked the doctor what the timeline is to be able to return to the basketball court, which is something that he loves to do. The doctor didn't have an answer, and he said, you know what, I'm going to do it in X amount of time, and he did. Challenging ourselves is so important, so we're going to be diving into that. Number two, a reframe, a new perspective, a mindset shift on what divine timing and quote-unquote God's plan, cue the Drake lyrics, what that actually means. Irwin shares what he believes it means, and it just opened my mind tremendously, so I'm super excited for you to dive into that. Number three, if you're looking to light the fire inside of you, maybe you felt like the fire hasn't been burning. Maybe the flame is dull and you need to reinvigorate it. You are going to find out just how to do that. Number four, how our early day constructs, which helps us build a foundation in life, which are oftentimes given to us by our guardians, our parents, our friends, society, culture, where we're growing up, how we're growing up, etc. How those early day constructs can truthfully be the walls holding us back. Honestly, there's so much more in this episode. I could talk to you for days about what you're going to walk away with. These are the things that stood out to me. I would love to hear what stood out to you. So feel free to tweet me, hit me up on Instagram, comment on the post promoting this episode on Instagram, wherever, however. Let us know what you think 
is your big takeaway. And now without further ado, we bring to you my brother, Erwin McManus. Erwin, what's going on, good brother? Morning. Hey, man. Sorry to make you wait. I'm not waiting. I'm chilling, man. I'm chilling. How are you? I'm good. Good. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. You ready to dive in? Yeah. Where's home for you? New York City. Born and raised. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I love New York. It's great. It's great. I mean, it's definitely a place that you need a break from. Very high energy, <laughs> very, you know, and especially if you let yourself get a little frantic, it could be frantic at times. It's a beautiful place to be though. Awesome. All right. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. We're already recording. Let's dive in deeper to that question. How are you? Like what's going on in your life? Oh, I'm one. I'm doing great. And having the time of my life, I turned 65 this month. God bless. So I've been alive a long time, but I don't <laughs> think I've ever had a time in my life where I've been more excited. I feel so incredibly alive. I just landed. I was in 17 cities and six different countries over the last three weeks. So it's, it's kind of insane. Okay. So I'm 30. I'm curious. What would you do differently if you could go back? It's not a regret thing, but if you were sitting across from Irwin at 30 years old, like, what would you be saying to him right now? I think what I would say to him is what I would say to anyone in their 20s. Live a life of intention, not a life of obligation. I think when I was 30 years old, and I know people are different. The personalities are different. Their psychological structures are different. But for me, I didn't really give myself permission to pursue my deepest ambitions and dreams at the level that I wished I had. I was trying to you know, live a meaningful life. I was trying to do things that mattered. But I also had like a lot of voices around me telling me what I should do with my life and what was important and what I shouldn't do. And, and I feel like I wasted a lot of energy trying to make a lot of people happy who in the end I couldn't make happy. I think some of it was just learning to be comfortable with trusting my own internal compass and the direction of my life that I felt most created to live out. So I, what I would say is the faster you can give yourself permission to live your life from intention, from the inside out, rather than a life of obligation, the more you will begin to move into life that one, I think you're created to live and two, that you will actually live without regret. Yeah. Can we break those two words down just to get some clarity here? Like what is the difference between intention and obligation? Yeah, it depends on, again, who a person is. But for me, a life obligation, I mean, frankly, in college, I became a person of faith. You know, I was basically an irreligious person and who actually wanted to do good in the world. You know, I wanted to make the world better. I didn't really have a, a underlying reason for that. I just felt like that was the better way to live. But when I became a person of faith, it seemed like then I just, I was bombarded by voices telling me, you should do this with your life or you should do this with your life. And, you know, you should be a pastor or you should, you know, you should not be a businessman, you know. You, know, you should only do humanitarian work. You shouldn't be an entrepreneur. And, you know, and I had all these voices in my head that in many ways restrained me from just pursuing crazy ambitions. Like I, I discovered I love directing. I love directing film. I, I love art. And I remember 20 years ago sitting with my wife telling her, honey, I'm going to redirect my life. I'm going to spend the next 20 years being an artist. And she said, go right ahead. But she didn't mean it. And a year later, I had a film company and a fashion company. And, you know, I was working on, on designing clothes and, and on documentaries and different pilots. And a year later, my wife said, hey, we need to have a conversation. I said, about what? And she said, suddenly, like, you're this artist. You're traveling New York and around the world and you're in fashion and film. And I, we need to talk about this. And I said, we did talk about it a year ago when I told you, you know, I was going to redirect my life. And she said, that conversation didn't count because I didn't believe you could be successful. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I've always been a person just who dreams and, you, you know, I know you're supposed to have focus 
focus and be focused on one thing. But, you know, I'm working on a graphic novel. I've been working on it for the last three years. It's a mythology out of the Persian Empire. I'm working with artists in South America. And, uh, you know, I'm designing a new line called Ghost Artifacts that's working on high-end, you know, super beautiful men's, you know, apparel. And I'm starting this internet space called The Arena where we can talk about big ideas. And I'm always going to be creating new stuff. I already have in my mind stuff I'm going to create in my 70s. I already know my next career direction, and I just keep those things a secret. And I didn't give myself permission in my 20s just to pursue insanely the things that I really loved. But I will say, I don't regret the life I lived in my 20s. I actually look back, and I can't believe I did the things I did. I mean, I was insane. I lived an incredibly radical dangerous life. I work with drug cartels and, and gangbangers, you know, in the most intense, violent, you know, communities in the United States. And I traveled the world into Damascus and into Pakistan and, and uh, to the most dangerous regions of the whole planet. I just lived a really fearless life. So I don't really live with regret. I just think I could have probably accomplished a lot more, a lot faster and a lot broader if I had discovered it was okay. Yeah. Well, on the perspective of faith, right, that was your divine plan. Your divine plan was unfolding before you, you know, living, quote, unquote, dangerously earlier on and now pursuing more artistic stuff. I I love that. And it leads me to ask, like, this is something that I ask often because I actually struggle with this and I'm the first to admit it. How do we accept divine, like, our divine timing? Like what the universe, God, whomever, anyone that's tuned into this believes in, like, how do we accept what's happening is working for us versus like against us or to us? Yeah, I've always felt like the universe was leveraged in my direction. I mean, even when I was a kid, my brother and his friends created what they called the Lucky Irwin Club because they felt like (laughs) somehow I would win even when I shouldn't, that things went in my direction even when there was no rational explanation for it. Long before I ever had a concept of God, I felt like somebody's got my back, you know? And I went through a lot of horrible stuff. It wasn't that I didn't go through tragedy and trauma. I mean, I'm an immigrant from El Salvador, you know, English is my second language. I never knew my real father. I have one brief memory of him. And my mom went to work for Pan Am right after I was born, literally after I was born. And so I didn't see her for the first several years of my life. My grandparents raised me, came to the States later, had, you know, my name is an alias. I mean, if I am the perfect storyline for massive psychosis and neurosis. And so when I say the universe was leveraged in my favor, I don't mean that I didn't have bad things happen to me. Sure. And it's, it's that I always felt like somehow something beautiful was on the other side. And even when I began to live my life in, with intention as a person of faith, I was 29 years old working in the hood, you know, and working with really impoverished people. My income was around $6,000 a year. So I was just crushing it. You know? And my wife and I slept on the floor because I couldn't afford a bed. And I was working at this event just as a volunteer backstage, 20,000 people in an arena where the Dallas Mavericks played basketball. And the speaker doesn't show up. And then the backup speaker is on a golf course, not answering his phone. And then an entourage of speakers waiting, hoping they could be asked to speak. We're all wearing suits, but it was 20,000 high school and college students. I'm in the back just volunteering, wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt. And the guy in charge comes and tells me he thinks I am supposed to speak. So with 45 minutes, you know, notice, I'm speaking to 20,000 people when I'd never spoke to more than 200 in my life. And those things just always seem to happen in my life. But I will tell you that I wasn't going to go volunteer that night because I was tired and it felt beneath me just to be backstage, you know, just moving a lantern, telling people where to go. If I had not shown up to serve, I would have not been given 
given that opportunity to speak. And, and I think that so oftentimes in my life, when it looked like the universe was for me, it's because I was standing in the right place by doing the right things, by serving people, by not thinking about myself, about just trying to be there for others. And I just, quote, always happened to be at the right place at the right time. And even this last week, I spoke to an, at an event, 350,000 with the reach of that talk. And when I first spoke at that event 20 years ago, I'm in that city. I get a call at three in the morning. At nine in the morning, the main speaker got sick. They heard I was in town and they called me up and said, hey, would you speak this morning? I would have never been given that opportunity to speak at this global leadership summit with, you know, James Clear was speaking there this past week and you know, people like Condoleezza Rice speak and, you know, Tony Blair and, you know, Bill Clinton spoke there. And I wasn't the person on the schedule. I wasn't the person they picked. I never felt like people needed to pick me because I felt like I'd already been picked. I just need to be, I just need to do what I need to be doing. And lo and behold, there I am. I speak in that event, another dramatic shift in my life. And, and so what I would say is like, I don't think of God's plan the way I think a lot of Christians do, where it feels like it's all like laid out and it's step-by-step. Step, you just need to make sure you do exactly what God wants. And in fact, I think that's the opposite of anything that both Judaism and Christianity actually teach in, in the scriptures. Because in the garden, if I could go all the way back to the beginning, the first metaphor, in the garden, this is what God says to Adam and Eve. He says, eat freely. And there's only one tree that's a bad choice. Every other tree is a good choice. And so I look at it and go, God's desire for us is for us to eat freely, to enjoy life, to pursue adventures, to pioneer, to explore, to create. And there's only a bad choice. And that's the choice that demeans who you are, demeans who others are, and demean, diminishes who God is. And I just live a life that's free. So when you ask me, you know, how do I relate to God's destiny? I think God's destiny is about who I become as a human being, not what I accomplish. And if I focus on who I'm becoming, I can do whatever I want because I'm doing it from the right place. So this is why I love having a podcast because it's that perspective right there. Like that perspective, that little mindset shift is such a beautiful thing. I mean, I'm born Roman Catholic. I grew up, I went to Catholic school my whole life. I was fed the Bible. I even went to uh, my freshman year in high school. I went to what I look at as an early fraternity. It was an all boys seminary school. It was wild, you know, so I'm fed that all the time, but it's that perspective that you just share. That's so beautiful. So I want to say thank you. That resonates with me on a really high level, but I want to take a step back here. It's hard to neglect something that you said, you know, you were mentioning that you were making $6,000 a year. You're sleeping on the floor with your wife. So I want to talk about that. I mean, she sounds like a ride or die straight up. If a woman is going to, yeah, if she's going to stay by your side in that hardship, and ride it out with that is such a beautiful thing. And even before that, you mentioned how, you know, you told her that you want to start pursuing more artistic endeavors. First question is, how do we start to embrace the changes we see in our partners? Because who we start dating is not who they're going to be forever. Yeah, don't marry who they are, marry who they're becoming. Mm. And, you know, just even in terms of Kim and I, we've been married 40 years, by the way. God bless. So I'm, I'm a novice because I've only been married one time. <laughs> That's a good thing, though. <laughs> And, uh, but I'm an expert because I've been married to uh, many different women in the same body. Mm. You know, I always tell men, look, if you want to be married to someone else, stay married to your wife because she's constantly changing and constantly growing. Right now, while we're speaking, my wife is in Malawi, Africa, working with the former president, building schools, building opportunities for people who are underserved, have the opportunities we have. We have this great relationship where... She lets me create as long as she can serve the world. So I was joking. I said, my job is how to create resources and her job is to figure out how to spend them <laughs> faster than I. But it actually allows me to be incredibly generative because there was a time in her life, my wife was probably giving away a half a million dollars a year. And then I lost my company. I, I, I lost like $10 million in one day. And my partner did something that was unethical and illegal. And I lost everything. I take a million dollar loan in my house just to finish all the projects I did not want to 
leave unfinished. And I had to fly home across the country and tell my wife I lost everything. Sitting in a little coffee shop getting coffee I could not afford anymore. And I looked at Kim and I said, honey, I lost everything. And my wife responded immediately and said, I thought I was your everything. And when she said that, I'm like, who says that? I mean, only Jane Austen writes scripts like that, you know, and, and I didn't have a, as a romantic a response. I just said, well, I just lost the everything that finances my everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she looked at me, she said, we've been poor before and you've always known what to do. She goes, well, we're going to be fine. And she really like just gave me a lot of internal strength. It took me five years to work my way out of that situation and, you know, come back out ahead financially. And and what's so amazing is both my kids came to me and said, hey, dad, this had to happen. You were in partnership with the wrong person at this time in your life. And you're so loyal, you would have never ended the relationship. And so you needed this to happen so that you could actually move on. And I think really circling back to your thing about destiny and, you know, like the universe, it's all about perspective. And when you only see the things that go wrong, you think the universe is against you, that God's against you. And when you realize that every opportunity is an opportunity to grow, to learn, to discover, and even to, to pivot and to be more creative, you know, then you see everything in your favor. And I look back at that moment and, and by the way, it hit me hard. I couldn't hold food down for 30 days. I lost so much weight that I looked awesome. And uh, you know, there are positive benefits that come out of these things. But what it did is that it restructured something in my mind. Again, I thought, wow, if I can lose 10 million or so and actually come out of that, rise up out of those ashes, I'm more resilient than I knew. I have more capacity to take on more than I ever thought. And it gave me more courage because I, I'm like, you can punch me and I'll go down, but I'm coming up before the count. And that's what you have to realize is that life isn't really about that momentary success. It really is about the internal process of becoming a person that you can respect, that you can look in the mirror and go, I'm proud of the person I'm becoming. Yeah. I'm glad you shared that story because when you told me your wife's response, I had tears in my eyes and chills up and down my arms. And I'm like, you know what? I cry enough. It's the first time I'm meeting Erwin face to face. I'm going to cry in front of him. But I'm glad you shared that. And it just, I mean, I'm really curious to know what it was during that five-year period that kept the fire inside of you burning, right? Like, I mean, what was it? I mean, I think there's several things. But one thing is I live a very public life. And I've always felt like my life is hopefully an inspiration to other people who are going through really tough things. And so when I see myself going through a really difficult situation, I remind myself, this isn't for me, this is for others. And if I can rise above this, it will help someone else find courage. And I think it was seven years ago, I found out I had stage four cancer. It had metastasized. And I was so clear in my own mind that how I lived through that moment would have a, a tremendous impact on other people. And I can tell you, it's, it was a strange thing. I never felt any bitterness. I never felt anger. And I honestly, I didn't even feel fear. I mean, obviously there'd be sadness because you know, I didn't want to not spend my life seeing my kids grow up and, you know, spend the next decades with my wife, Cam, and getting to uh, enjoy this beautiful world that we live in. And there wasn't sadness, but I wanted to be so clear to people because I feel like there are people who say they believe in God until life doesn't go their way. You know, people who say they have faith until faith is required. <laughs> and sure. um, I want people to know, hey, God's a really good God. Me having cancer has nothing to do with God's character. And just because I'm living a life that's trying to honor him and serve people, it doesn't make me exempt from tragedy. Those 
doesn't make me exempt from the, the hard challenges of life. This is what real life looks like. And I think what really helps me through those things is one, I just love surprising myself. You know, I had a six hour surgery to get that cancer out of my body. And I asked the surgeon the moment I woke up, what's the fastest anyone's ever recovered from this and gotten back on a basketball court? And he goes, well, there's not really like a world's record for that. I said, well, then that's good because I got it. Nah. And, you know, 30 days, I think it was after surgery, I was back on a basketball court. And, you know, the holes in my stomach were still... Um, not fully healed. So I was bleeding while I was playing, and uh, but my three-point shot was dropping. So I knew the universe was for me. And so I think some of it is, I just love challenging myself, not for anyone else. You know, so when I go through a massive financial crisis or, you know, when I lose a company or something like that, and by the way, we lost the company when it was making the most money and when it was doing so well. And I didn't sue my partner, even though I could have come out of it really, really well. And my money has never in my mind been my end game. Like, I just don't care about money. It just has never been my goal. I want to live a life of meaning. I want to live a life where I can make the greatest impact on other people's lives possible. And I want to have fun while I'm doing it. And that's what they couldn't steal from me. Somebody can take all your money. They can take all your assets, but they cannot take who you are. And I remember I coach a lot of like high-end people, you know, people in the world of sports and fashion and music industry and business world. And But I only really almost like coach one-on-one. -on -one. I only coach geniuses, people who are really extraordinary in their field. And I remember sitting down with one guy because he had lost a billion dollars, you know, and it was pretty like shaken up. And I said, you know, when you started, how much money did you have? And he said, well, none. And I said, all right, so when you started, how many investors did you have? He goes, none. I said, all right, so you started with nothing and built a billion dollar empire. So now you have a billion dollars worth of experience. So you're actually not starting from where you were. You've had a billion dollars of investment in your life. If you could do this with nothing, imagine how much you can do with all of this. And I think that's like, to me, the mindset is that if you keep growing, no one can take that from you. You cannot take everything from me and leave me in a deficit because all those things have taught me and grown me and built me. I love that. That's powerful. On the topic of, you know, how I just asked you, like what kept the fire burning? I'm curious, what's your advice for the people that feel like their fire isn't even lit? Like what's your advice for them to get that fire lit and then burning? Yeah, I think the most difficult thing to transfer into a person is like determination, that passion, that drive. When I coach people, I mean, frankly, I kind of coach people who already have a lot of drive. I coach people who have so much drive, they've almost set themselves on fire. <laughs> and, and the reason is that people that do not have drive do not need coaching because there's nothing to coach. What you need to do if you don't have drive, if you don't have that fire, is you need to get around people who have fire. And you need to just suck it up and be around people who make you feel like you're underachieving. Because when you get around people with fire, that's what gives you fire. It's sort of the whole concept with coals. When coals are separated, they all go out. But when you move them together, they all add heat to each other. And so I would say, find something you care about, even if it's the smallest thing. Just find something that you care about besides yourself. And then begin to give whatever time you have, even if it's discretionary time, even if it's time after work, even if it, you hate your job, find something that really brings meaning to your life and begin to fuel that fire, begin to fuel that passion. And that will begin to burn in you because passion, urgency, drive, that's not something anyone else can give you. I spent at least a decade working with the urban poor. And one of the things that I just had to come to grips with is that because when I first went, I was a high idealist. 
And I believed in some sense that it's the institution that's holding everyone down. You know, it's the man. You know? And uh, I was like, uh, you know, I mean, I've always been a little bit of an anarchist. And so I just want to destroy every system. And, you know, I'm going to bring down the man. And if I'm the man, I'm going to bring myself down, you know. And, and I thought all people need is an opportunity. But what I discovered working with people in poverty is that you can give people opportunity, but you cannot give them the determination. And so what you want to do is you want to find people who already have determination. They're just hitting walls, that they don't have the same access that you have, the same opportunities that you have. And when you find a person with determination, they take full opportunity of that opportunity that you give them. And I think that's true for me. I mean, I'm an immigrant from El Salvador. I could have a thousand reasons why I've never achieved in my entire life. You know, I was a straight D student first through 12th grade. I didn't go to college right away. I was working construction. I worked as a carpenter. I worked as a, you know, I worked as a pizza cook. I flipped burgers. I, I was a lumberjack. I mean, I was a librarian. Every job that you could get without qualifications, that was me. It would have been very easy to go, oh, life was unfair. Life is unfair. And if you have determination, it'll be unfair in your direction. Mm, I love that. So you talk about how the people you coach almost set themselves on fire because of all of the drive they have, right? So we're now we're on the flip side of it. We just talked about the people that might not have the drive, might not have that fire lit. But you lead me to ask, like, do we need to contain our fire? It depends on what you mean by contain. Mm, okay. You know, you do need to contain it if it's like a forest fire. And it's just consuming everything indiscriminately. But you don't want to contain it like a fireplace and become domesticated. And you want to direct your fire. And you want to direct your ambition. And you want to make sure that the motivation behind that fire is, is pure. And so a huge part of it is, I mean, I remember the first time I spoke at this group called the 100 Million Mastermind. It's a very interesting self-description for these people, right? You know, and, and I remember the first time I talked to them, I said, hey, I'm not going to tell you how to make more money. I'm going to tell you how not to die alone. What ends up happening is there's so many mostly men who are so driven to make $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, they're willing to make it at the cost of everything in their life, their relationships, their character, and really their future. And it's, I think it's about 75% of NFL athletes when they finish professional football are completely bankrupt. Yeah. And, you know, at least 50% of them two years after are divorced or bankrupt or drug addicted or dead. And because I've worked with probably over 500 to 1,000, you know, pro athletes speaking into their lives. And one of the great challenges is that when you have talent at an early age, it is an incredible curse. Because when you have talent, people build extra external structures to optimize your talent for their benefit. And then once that talent is no longer essential, they remove those external structures and you have no internal structures for success. And so what can be deceptive is when you look at a person who has a lot of fire and they have huge success, you may think that they have all the internal structures that will give them sustained success for the rest of their life. It isn't true. Most of the structures are external and inside there's a house fire where everything is being destroyed. If that makes sense. It does. It does. And I always appreciate when I can banter with someone in metaphor and we're going back and forth on that fire right there. So it does. I was going to give you another metaphor because when I was in high school, no, out of high school, I was still living at home and my mom, I was just drifting, says, you need to go find a real job. I had saved so much money. I started my own little business when I was around like 12 years old, my own bank account. I saved an immense amount of money through high school. I bought my car cash and my family does not come from wealth. 
my family comes from, you know, you spend $10 more than you make, you know, kind of family. But I was really good with money. And so I didn't have to work when I finished high school. So I took a little break and my mom like done with me because I've just had no direction, no purpose in my life because you need to have a job by tomorrow or you're out of the house. And so I slept in my car in freezing cold North Carolina. And I thought, this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and got a job at a hamburger shop, got up early the next morning to go to the hamburger shop. And our house had an electrical explosion and the house caught on fire, consumed from the inside out about 15 minutes after I left the house. And they didn't even know if I was in the house when the house went up. And so a couple of things for that metaphor. One, if I had not decided to go to work. I would have been killed. I would have been consumed by a fire because I was so lazy. I would have still been in bed asleep. I was so depressed and so despondent, had no purpose in my life. It was just drifting. I would have literally burned up in my sleep. And But the flip side of that is that the house was a great house, except it had an electronic failure behind the refrigerator in the kitchen. And that's the way most lives are consumed. It's the neglect of the small things that are behind the walls that actually consume your entire life. That is a powerful story. That is powerful. I have to ask you from a faith perspective, what does it mean to you when you look back at that and you're like, you know what, I'm still here, but there was a chance that I wouldn't be here. Like, what does that mean to you? Matt, in that year before I actually became a person of faith, there were like five times I should have been dead. I fell off of a four-story building and never hit the ground. And I'll let you figure out how that happened. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm like, wait, what do you mean you never hit the ground? I got hit head on by a car running across the highway, was paralyzed from the waist down. I had this series of events at the age of 19, broke my neck. Neck. I mean, just of injuries that were catastrophic. And I remember when I fell off that gym and I was working construction, I went up a ladder, it flipped on the fourth floor, dropped me four stories. On the way down, I just reached back with my left hand without seeing, and I happened to grab a scaffold. And instead of tearing out my rotator cuff, I just swung there in the air, climbed my way back up the scaffold to the top of the planks where full grown men were paralyzed, leaning back against the wall because they watched this guy drop down to die and then climb back up. Holy shit. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I'm on top of these wooden planks bouncing up and down going, I can't die. I can't die. I can't die. I actually felt it in that moment. I think there's something trying to kill me. And there's something that won't let me die, which by the way, made me really open to the possibility of God. And that's the journey that actually brought me to a faith in Jesus Christ was I felt like someone was keeping me alive because there was a purpose for my life that had not yet discovered that was waiting for me. And I ended up becoming a philosopher. I begged my way to university. I became a philosophy student. I had, after one year, three different universities offered me scholarships in philosophy. And because of work I did on Socratic thought and economic development. And I was searching, I was reading Marcus Aurelius and reading Aristotle and reading Plato and, you know, understanding the concept of Socrates because he actually never wrote anything, but Plato wrote his works and, you know, reading Hume and Blake and, you know, Descartes and Locke. And I just devoured everything in modern history, trying to search for meaning in my life. And it wasn't because I suddenly became an intellectual. I was desperate to know if life actually mattered, if my life actually mattered. And I actually discounted Christianity. I laughed at it and said, there's just no reasonable human being who would ever believe this. And I was born Roman Catholic as well. So it was like, you know, I'm like, hey, I know the emptiness of this. So there's no way I'm going to ever like be conned into believing this. And, And yet, you know, eventually the message of Jesus just started antagonizing me. It's the only way I can think of it. It's like, it was just 
irritating me, you know? And as I looked at world religions and I looked at philosophies and, and I realized every religion has this in common. They tell you what you need to do to get to wherever you want to go. You need, this is what you need to do to get to God. This is what you need to do to get to Nirvana. This is what you need to get to do to get to enlightenment. This is what you need to do to get to transcendence. This is what you need to do to get forgiveness. And I thought, man, if there's a God out there, it can't be like this. He can't be sitting on, on top of a mountain going, if you climb up here, you get to have a relationship with me. Right. And then I hear the message of Jesus going, it's not about what you do to get to God because you can't do enough to get to God. It's what God does to get to you. And just understanding the fundamental nature of love, just understanding the fundamental nature of love. I said, whoever's more powerful is the one who has to take initiative. Whoever's more powerful is the one who has to make the breakthrough. And so it made sense to me. If there was a God, he would be the one that acted in history. And if there was a way to God, if there was a God on the other side of this, he would be the one searching for me. And that's why the message of Jesus made so much sense to me because the message of Jesus is not what you need to do to get to God, but what God did to get to you. And that Jesus, through his crucifixion and resurrection, removes every obstacle between us and love, every obstacle between us and forgiveness, removes every obstacle between us and, uh, and fulfillment. And, and I thought, okay, I'm good accepting that maybe nothing is real. It's not the best solution, but I can live with that. But if there is a God, this is the only narrative that makes sense. And so I just took a huge risk. I wish I could say it was like an intellectual thing. And, you know, I did all the Bible studies. I did, and I've never seen a Bible in my entire life. I just basically said, God, if you're out there, I'm in. And that's why I think we almost like complicate things. We definitely It was do. very simple for me. I just basically just said, God, if you're out there, I'm in. And Jesus, if you're God, I'm going to let you make that clear to me. And, you know, 40 years later, I'm still in my back house going, I can't believe I believe this. And but it's changed my life. That it most definitely has. I mean, I haven't lived it, but from hearing your stories, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. I only have you for a few more minutes, so I'm going to try and squeeze a couple more questions out of you. I mean, you've given us a ton already, so I don't know where this could potentially go, but it's something that I ask because it's my job. What's a question you wish more people would ask you, and how would you answer it? Well, I'm bombarded with questions, so I'm not sure if there's a question I keep hoping people would ask me. <laughs> but I think that the question I get so much is... How did your thinking change so you see life from such a different perspective? And which is, by the way, why I've written this book that's coming out called Mind Shift. Yep. What I wanted to do is I wanted to take people inside of the mental structures that I think have actually helped me design a life I love. Because one of the things I have found is that people have so many internal structures for failure and they don't realize that their limitations are almost always internal. And I remember sitting with this guy, who I guess he's like a CEO, and he was asking me, you know, I have this other role I can step into. It's an incredible promotion, you know, huge advancement for me, but I can't seem to get into the other side of this wall. And he kept saying, I just keep hitting this wall. And finally I said, I just take a moment and, and see your life on the other side of this wall. And it's ironically, this was at a bachelor party with like 12 men. And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm coaching there. I, you know, and I said, I, do you see yourself on the other side of that wall? And he said, yes. And I said, do you want that life? And he goes, no. And I said, you need to realize that you are the wall. And he just goes, I'm the wall. And my experience is that most of the walls we hit, we're the wall. So I do wish that the question people would ask is, what are the internal limitations that I've accepted for myself? 
And which is why I wrote MindShift, you, you know, and, and even just the subtitle of you don't have to be a genius to think like one. I love that. Yeah. Um, you know, and some of it comes from the irony of my own life. I was on a psychiatric chair by the time I was 10 years old. You know, I was a straight D student. You know, I was told I was retarded. And then later in my life, now I travel the world. I'm introduced to savant or a polymath or a genius. And I go, no one understands how funny that is. And my wife, who's married me for 40 years, literally said to me, what happened to you? She was every time I turn around, you're like someone I didn't know before. And I can tell you, Matt, I feel like the boundaries in my imagination were erased, like the ceilings of my intellect were removed. And I know this is a internal journey that's available to everyone. I don't believe that there is genetic uniqueness in me in that sense. I believe that there is structural uniqueness because I've redesigned my inner world. And I just wish people would ask, how do I unlock my own genius? Because there's so much genius inside of every person that's being wasted. It's dormant. It's latent. It's waiting to be unlocked locked. And I feel like my life mission is to unlock the genius in every person. I love that. We're going to make sure that MindShift is in the show notes of this episode. We'll have a link there, whether it be for pre-orders or when the book is released. So that will most definitely be in the show notes for everyone that's tuned in. I appreciated that. That was a beautiful sentiment you just shared. And I've been doing something new here. This is as we're coming to a close. I've been doing something new. I actually, it was a very creative idea I saw from Stephen Bartlett. And I said, you know what? Uh, I want to start implementing it because I think it's a beautiful thing. I've been asking a past guest to ask our current guest, which is you, a question without knowing who is who. In fact, I'll tell you, the last guest that we had on the show was Ricky Williams, the uh, former NFL running back who had a lot of yeah, hardships. He, Texas. He, he's absolutely fantastic. And he asked you a question without knowing who he was asking it to. And his question is, who is your favorite elder and why? Elder? Elder, correct. Well, I mean, the first person that came to my mind was Leonardo da Vinci. Okay, why is that? And, uh, obviously, I should say Jesus, right? Because I'm a follower of Jesus, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know? but, uh, but let me give you like an unexpected answer. And I think that I spent most of my life feeling very alone in the world. And so I had to search through history to find friends and people that I could relate to and be inspired by. And I, I was inspired by da Vinci because I felt like da Vinci imagined what couldn't even be created because there wasn't enough technology to create what he could imagine. And so he imagines a submarine, you know, generations before it was possible for it to exist. The helicopter before it was technologically possible for it to exist. And he doesn't have a lot of finished works of art, to be honest with you. I think he has like five or six finished works of art. But it was, it seemed to me it was less important for him to finish a project than to unlock possibilities of the impossible. And so from my childhood all the way through this point in my life, Da Vinci was always an inspiration for me. I studied his genius. I used to learn how to do things with both hands so I could activate both sides of my mind. I, I basically just tried to like steal his approach toward unlocking genius and see how it affected my own life. So people like, you know, Da Vinci are hugely influential in my life and, and Casso and, you know, some of those other individuals. I love that. I was going to invite you to play basketball the next time you're here in New York City. But now that I know you could play with both hands, I don't know, I can't slide to the left as good as I used to. So my defense might not be as good. But the second part of that question is you asking a question to our next guest. And of course, without knowing who it is. Now, by the way, I love this. This is really good. I appreciate and, um, it. Yeah. I think what I want to ask your next guest is what is the unexpected skill or competency that you had to learn to achieve your highest level of success? Would your answer to that question be tearing yourself down internally and building yourself back up? Well, I'm not going to answer your question because it's for the next guest. Okay. There you go. <laughs> 
No, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I, I want to let everyone uh, just a reminder that Mindshift, Irwin's new book, in the show notes of this episode. Do you have anything else going on? You talked about the arena. Do we need to put that in the show notes as well? What's going on with that? Oh, we didn't talk about the arena. Yeah, this is this is the most fun I've had in years. Creating the arena, I think, is going to be a significant breakthrough space. We want to create a place where people from all over the world can connect together and focus on the one I want to raise up, a, just a, a movement of world-class communicators. I, I think that we've lost the art of words and the art of communicating with power and strength and, and at human frequencies. I, I have this process called the seven frequencies of communication, where I help people understand the communication frequency from which they are connecting to other people and how people listen through different frequencies. And, and, and I create content, but I hate selling. And so we thought, okay, why don't we create a space where we can put most cutting edge content on communication, leadership, character, personal growth, and make it accessible to people who are members. And so we're creating a membership space called the arena, where if you want, you know, to grow in leadership, communication, character. And then I was sitting down with my son, Aaron, who's 35 and saying, he's my business partner. And I said, but I want it to be also a place for big ideas. I want to talk about philosophy, theology, leadership, relationships, emotional health, psychological well-being, you know, mental performance. I just want to, I want to have AI. I want to talk about everything. And then he looked at me and he said, oh, you're talking about the arena. And uh, where the old, where the gladiators come in and go to war. And, but it's like the, the mental gladiators. And so that's how we came up with the name. It, we're launching it this August. Awesome. And it's going to be a space. And frankly, I, I coach people, and but it's like a, a six-figure space. And so most people can't afford that. And then I have masterminds that are, you know, in that range from thirty to $50,000 a year, which is still fairly high-end for a lot of people. And we wanted to create a space for people who were not at that level yet, but really wanted to access the kind of thinking that will help them elevate. And so the arena, I think, is going to be around $350 a month. And, and it's still, you know, expensive for some people, but it'll be far more accessible to far many more. But I do know this, the people who actually grow, they understand the importance of investing in their growth. And so this is for me, it's the new era of education. It's frankly, it's, you're not going to get this in high school. You're not going to get this in college. You're not going to get this at Harvard. You're not going to get this at Stanford. You're not going to get this at Berkeley because they're not teaching you what you need to be successful in the new world. This to me is the future of education. Absolutely. I love that. We're going to make sure that we have the arena in the show notes as well. I'm going to ask you one last question as I have you for a couple more minutes here. Erwin makes it to whatever year he wants to live to. Whatever it is. Could be you live till you're 250. Who knows? Whatever it is, you impact as many people through your books or the arena or your speaking engagements, whatever the case is. But you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. It's the piece of advice that's etched into your tombstone. It's less of a legacy thing, but more of Erwin just popped in my mind. This is what he taught me. What is that advice? I just told someone I want on my tombstone. He has so much potential. Not he had, because we think of potential as a limited commodity. I actually think the more of your potential you access, the more potential you actually gain. And so this whole idea that you should die without any potential is such a myth. I want to die with so much potential that people wished I had lived longer. So you're saying when you hit new levels of potential, it just continues to increase and increase and increase. That's right. That's so I want to die with so much potential that the world feels the loss because they say, oh, what would he have dreamed up next year. Mm, I love that. Erwin, I, I want to say thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to amplify this. Again, MindShift, the arena, all in the show notes, socials, websites, all of that good stuff is there as well. But expressing gratitude. Thank you for this opportunity. Hey, thank you so much, Matt. Take care. I appreciate it. You have just tuned into episode number 293 of the Decoding Success podcast featuring our friend Erwin McManus. 
Now, you can check out Irwin in the show notes of this episode. Number one, you're gonna be able to pre-order his brand new book. Get online for that book because it's gonna shift your life. In fact, it's gonna shift your mind, which will shift your life. Number two, you're gonna be able to check out his new program, The Arena which is a really dope program that we talked about at the end of this episode. Make sure you check that out. Furthermore, as always, you're going to be able to find his socials and you're going to be able to find his website. Get connected with Irwin through the show notes of this episode. And you want to know what? Let him know that you heard him here on Decoding Success. I'm sure he's going to love to hear from you. Furthermore, I'm going to bring you back to the beginning of this episode where I gave you a call to action. I had mentioned that you chose this episode and you chose it for a reason. And if you want to know what? You didn't choose it. It was chosen for you by a greater power, God, the universe, whoever, however, it was chosen for you if you did not choose this episode. So I'm going to ask you to help the people in your life make that choice because there's someone in your life right now that really needs to start challenging themselves. There's someone in your life right now that really needs a reframe, a new perspective, a mindset shift when it comes to divine timing or God's plan. There's someone in your life right now that needs that fire lit up inside of them. There's someone in your life right now that has early day constructs, walls per se, holding them back. There's someone in your life right now that needs you to help them find this and you have the opportunity to do so. So whether you share it by screenshotting it and posting it on your Instagram story, make sure you tag Erwin and myself, whether there's a way of sharing it via word of mouth the next time you're in a bathroom at a bar or a club or wherever at work, who knows? There's so many ways to share this. There's so many ways to make an impact. So I'm putting that back in the forefront of your mind to make sure that you're sharing the impact that is within this episode. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.